104.5 The Zone's non-stop sports talk continues with a look at Nashville's teams and at news around the nation from the lead writer of 104.5thezone.com. This is The Big Six. The Big Six with Jason Martin. And here we go. Straight up 6 o'clock by my watch means it is time for the one and only never duplicated Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. The first of many Big Sixes to come in 2019. Thank you for joining me. My name is Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. You can follow me there. Telephone number is 615-737-1045-737-1045. Jimmy Harper, my main man, behind the glass, spinning the dials radio style for me tonight. So I'm told, and because I have eyes and I can look at maps, it ain't fun. It is not pleasant at all on the asphalt right now, and a lot of you are staring at brake lights and not moving too quickly. So my job over the next hour is the mission statement of this show. I'm not going to waste your time. I'm going to make sure this hour if you're stuck in traffic out there, is entertaining and informative. So I was going to start with Antonio Brown, but I actually want to start with Marcus Mariota. Now, I know you've heard about eight all week long. You probably heard me Monday morning talking about Mariota when I was filling in for Clay Travis on Outkick the Coverage on New Year's Day, or I guess I should say Tuesday. But I've been thinking about Mariota in a different way over the past day or so, and I want to take a different approach to talking about Marcus Mariota tonight. Now, if you heard me on New Year's Day, we ran Clay's show that I was filling in with Jeff Schwartz. We ran it back-to-back. We ran six hours of it, basically, on New Year's Day. So you heard me say a lot about Marcus. And largely that day, and the day before on social media at Jmart Zone, I largely defended him not playing on Sunday. And I also tried to explain what I believe the difference is between designations and classifications and descriptors of the word soft and the word injury prone or the two words injury prone soft is a mentality. That's what it connotes to me. And to me, it is also entirely unfair to apply that in any way, in any shape, in any form to Marcus Mariota. That dude is an ultimate competitor. I would put him right there with a guy like Russell Wilson, who somehow has not missed a single down in his professional career, despite being kind of small and playing a physical style that involves a lot of running. Soft is something you can't control. It's a mentality. Injury prone is a reality, and it's largely out of the control of its victim. To me, it's very fair to apply that to Marcus. You can say that he hasn't missed that many games, and you wouldn't be entirely inaccurate, but he's been banged up a lot. He's played hurt an awful lot, and he's seen his share of issues. There's no denying that fact if you're objective. But here's how I want to evaluate Marcus Mariota today, and I want you to think about this and come up with your own list. There are eight open head coaching jobs in the NFL right now. You got the Browns, the Packers, the Jets, the Dolphins, the Broncos, the Cardinals, the Bengals, and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. How I see it, if I'm a head coaching candidate, 
especially if I'm a young guy. I'm going to look at two things when I'm deciding on where I want to go. And now this is assuming I have my choice of jobs. That's certainly not always the case. But presuming you could take any of those eight jobs. The first thing that I look at is the biggest thing. Who is the quarterback? How old is the quarterback? What's the quarterback ceiling? What do I know about the quarterback? Can I work with the quarterback? Can I win with the quarterback? It's easy. Quarterback's the most important position in all of pro sports. It's not even close. Who are you picking in the playoffs this year? You're probably taking the top offenses led by quarterbacks you trust, or if you don't, then you have to talk yourself out of that. There are a whole lot of you out there, you might not want to admit this, who still think New England's going back to the Super Bowl because of the coach and because of the quarterback. New Orleans Saints, Drew Brees. And in situations, if you don't totally trust a quarterback, even when you have something like Baltimore's defense or Chicago's defense, there's a little bit of hesitation there because of the quarterback inexperience or the fluke factor. But you think about Drew Brees, and even as young as he is, you think about Patrick Mahomes. Jared Goff's kind of looked sort of normal, sort of mortal, maybe more than just mortal in the back half of the season for the Rams. So how do you feel about the Rams? Probably not as good, right? If the quarterback causes you to hesitate, then that affects your prediction unlike just about anything else. So that's number one. Who is the quarterback? How old is he? What's his ceiling? Can he and I do business together and win football games? And then there's number two, and it's only applicable in certain cases. And that is, is this a total rebuild that I'm walking into? If it is, and that's what I want then the quarterback discussion isn't as important because I'm probably walking into a scenario to get my guy at quarterback because he's not there yet. So you got eight jobs open today in the NFL. Here's how I want you to think about Marcus Mariota and how you can evaluate him in a way maybe you never have before. Let's pretend there were nine job openings. And let's pretend the ninth is the Tennessee Titans. And before you even ask, I am by no means suggesting that should be true. Mike Vrabel did a good job. I'm a big fan of his first season at the helm, as are most of you. I'm not saying that job should be open. I'm saying hypothetically, to evaluate Marcus Mariota, let's pretend there are nine jobs open right now in the NFL instead of eight. If you were to add the Titans to that mix, where would they fall in the list of most to least desirable? And folks... Where you place the Tennessee Titans in that list is going to tell you an awful lot about how you actually view Marcus Mariota because you cannot make that decision without the quarterback being maybe not just a prime factor, but the prime factor. We just went over this. So where would I rank these jobs? Here's how I would go. Number one is Cleveland. Factor of the quarterback. Baker Mayfield's a killer. He's like Kobe Bryant in the NFL. Ultimate competitor, deadly accurate. But it's not just him, but it starts with him because, of course, it does. You've got Miles Garrett. You've got Denzel Ward. You've got another killer in Jarvis Landry. You've got a young, talented tight end in David Njoku. There's a lot to like in Cleveland right now. And it says a lot about how good you think Baker Mayfield could be or certainly how good I think he is that that job went from the absolute worst opening every single year to the best opening in a year where there are a couple of other decent opportunities. Number two, I'll go with Green Bay. 
even though I really personally don't want to work with Aaron Rodgers because I'm pretty sure Aaron Rodgers is a jerk. He can win a lot of football games. I don't think I want to work with Aaron Rodgers. His family doesn't even talk to him very often. Number three, I'm going to go with the New York Jets because I still think Sam Darnold can be a really, really good football player. I loved him coming out, and I think that he's going to be solid if you bring in the right guy. And if I'm a young head coach and I'm looking at the quarterback, I think I can be that guy because, of course, if I don't have that kind of confidence, then I'm probably not in this list to begin with. And then comes number four. Number four, I'm going to put Tennessee right there. You can make an argument that it's Arizona, but it's such a dumpster fire down there. You're probably about to lose Larry Fitzgerald. Maybe you have one more year with him. I really like Josh Rosen, but there's still not a lot around it. And Arizona is a place that has been a perennial loser, and they're the worst team in the NFL right now. And they just fired a coach after one year. So if you don't get it done quickly, you might not be there very long. But I'm going to put Tennessee at four. And then let me run through the rest of the list quickly, and then I'll get back to why Tennessee's at four. Arizona at five. Then I've got my, actually as a fan, Denver Broncos at six. Miami at seven. Tampa Bay at eight. And Cincinnati dead last. Mayfield, Rodgers, Darnold. One, two, three in jobs. Then as much as I like Rosen with me as the coach in this hypothetical, I'll put Tennessee at four, but you could maybe put them at five. And then you've got a bunch of teams without a quarterback. You've got Tennessee's injury trouble. Denver's got a GM and John Elway with no eye for talent. He's gone through Brock Osweiler, Trevor Simeon, Paxton Lynch, and now he just gave Case Keenum $36 million over two years. Miami is almost exactly like Tennessee, but with less talent. Tannehill and Mariota are very similar in that they've both been hurt a lot. Both at times have looked really good and other times looked awfully pedestrian. Tampa Bay, I personally just don't want any any part of Jameis Winston. And then there's Cincinnati. Anybody that left Marvin Lewis in that gig for 16 years doesn't really care about winning games, at least more than about eight or nine a season. Now, I cared about longevity and just staying somewhere for a while, maybe, because they don't really fire a whole lot of guys. But I want to win. So in that list, putting Tennessee at four, what does that say about Marcus Mariota? It says, because you have to factor in all the teams that are in the playoffs right now, you would want the quarterbacks that are on those teams probably more than anybody in the jobs that are open with the exception maybe of Mayfield, Rodgers, and Darnold. Mariota, you can, you, I'd probably take Mariota over Mitchell Trubisky. Maybe you can make an argument. I would take him over Lamar Jackson at this point because I'm not sure I'd buy into Lamar Jackson long-term. Maybe. I hope he is. He'd be great for the league if he's able to, to keep this going. But if you factor in all the pros and cons about Marcus, he is what I've always said he was. He's average. You can call him Super Mario. You can call him Magic Marcus. I will call him Mediocre Marcus. He's somewhere around the 20th best quarterback in the league because you have to factor in the good and the bad, the plus and the minus. Personally, I'd rather go with young guys that have lost a lot for a season or two rather than someone four years in that still has the same questions being asked about him on a regular basis. Marcus is not soft. He is the direct opposite of that. He's been beaten up, but he's also been inaccurate on throws where he shouldn't be. He doesn't feel pressure all that well. He's inconsistent at throwing the football away, and he takes way too many hits when he hangs on to it in the pocket. 
I've said for years, I don't think he's a franchise guy, but I also believed that there was capability in him to become that, but that I also didn't think that it would manifest. He gets a year. He gets one more year, and that's going to determine whether he's here long-term and how much money he's going to command. Problem, the other problem about Mariota is that he wins enough that you're always on the cusp of the playoffs if he has talent around him, which he does, especially defensively right now, and now with Derrick Henry. And that means that your draft pick is not ever going to be what it needs to be to replace him easily. He's got what Tyrod Taylor did for the Bills for years, winning seven games, eight games, knocking them out of the top ten, knocking them sometimes in that 15 to 20 range in the draft. Basically, that's what Marcus is right now. He's Tyrod Taylor when it comes to how difficult it might be to replace him. So those are all factors. But again, think about the eight open jobs. Add the Tennessee Titans to that mix. Where the Titans fall in terms of where you would want to work as a head coach tells you a whole lot about Marcus Mariota. Where would you slot him? 615-737-1045, 615-737-1045, or send your tweets to me at jmartzone. And when we come back, another explanation for you. Antonio Brown, not the first, won't be the last. It's the position, stupid. We'll be right back. It's the Big Six on 104 Packing. Tony Barnhart talks college football with you every Saturday. Presented by Strouds Barbecue and by Tennessee Steel Haulers. Saturday mornings at 9.15 on 104.5 The Zone. Welcome back to the Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. Bowling Green's Cage the Elephant bringing us back. Cry Baby. I'll talk about Antonio Brown in a minute. Pretty good selection here to come back with this one. 615-737-1045 is the phone number to join me. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. My name again, Jason Martin, Jimmy Harper, my producer tonight. Let's go. We were talking about Marcus Mariota, and I said a different way to evaluate Mariota than maybe you have thought about is to take the eight open NFL jobs and make it nine and then list those jobs from one to nine in the order of which you would take them if you had the opportunity at each of them. And because of the importance of the quarterback to the NFL game and to football in general, you're going to factor in who is the quarterback on those teams when you're making those decisions. And because of that, wherever you place the Tennessee Titans gives you a fairly good look at what you believe about Marcus Mariota and whether or not you believe he's the guy. You might say he's the guy. You might love him to death. But if you put Tennessee 6th or 7th on that list, you're saying a lot about what you really think about Marcus Mariota. It's not completely in a vacuum. Yeah, you can talk about the defense, and you can talk about Derrick Henry, and you can talk about things. But you're generally, when I looked at this list, after I put it together, a lot of it came down to the quarterback in almost every case, especially at the top. Craig in Forest Hills leads us off in 2019 on the Big Six. Craig, what's up? So, yeah, I agree with what Jason's saying here. I just think that we've got to uh, really look at long-term. We're looking for a grand slam, man. We want to hit a freaking grand slam. We're not looking for mediocre or above average. Let's call it Marcus above average, right? He's above average. I'll give him that. But we're not, we're not going to the Super Bowl that way. Let's go 
go all the way. That's what I got to say. All right. I appreciate it. You know what? I agree with what Jason said, too. I'm a fan of that guy. I don't know that I would call him above average. I think he's above average at his best or when he's close to his best. But I think mediocre is about right. I think he's average. Mediocre is a little bit negative. Average is a little better. I'd rather somebody say I'm average than say I'm mediocre. So I'll say he's average. Average enough to be Tyrod Taylor. Average enough to be Ryan Tannehill. To be in that list. But you ain't Breeze, you ain't Mahomes, not Rivers. You're not these guys. And you're not Ben Roethlisberger. So let's talk about the Steelers then, since I mentioned that. Now, I might have gotten into this topic before in some, to some degree, or at least displayed this theory, described this theory for you, but I'm going to do it again because of Antonio Brown. He's undeniably, no question, one of the best receivers of the decade in the NFL. He's a total stud at that position. But as of late, and increasingly over this season, he became a major malcontent in a way that somehow even trumped Le'Veon Bell, his former teammate. So rather than sit here and talk about the obvious, which is that the Steelers were a much more volatile mix than maybe we ever thought. You know what? Actually, I am going to go into that for a second. Big Ben, as good as he's been, is a jerk. That's the second time I've used that today. Aaron Rodgers and now Ben Roethlisberger. Now, I'm not saying that because he's ever disrespected me. I'm saying it because almost everybody that has interacted with him for more than a few seconds can't stand him, including most of his teammates. He was known to be incredibly arrogant and standoffish at Miami of Ohio, dismissive of folks, super cocky, and he rubs everybody the wrong way. He's also a first ballot Hall of Fame quarterback that's done more in his career than many of us probably anticipated when he came out in that draft. Then there's Le'Veon Bell. Le'Veon, with his, he had a little bit of weed trouble, had a few questionable behavioral things, nothing really untenable, at least for a while. Also really happens to like money, unlike almost no one. And he lied to his teammates during the offseason about working out these contract issues and how he'd definitely be there for them by week one. And then he never was. And now he's sending sweet little nothings on Instagram to Andrew Luck, wondering what could be if he were able to join the Indianapolis Colts. He's a guy that screams Jets to me, at least the old Jets, but we'll see. And then there's Antonio Brown. He's the newest little rascal. And he has now thrown something at his star quarterback in the locker room, gotten into multiple arguments. He's broadcasted from his locker room post game on Facebook Live. He's throwing teammates under the bus. He's complaining and moaning about his usage rate in relation to other top wideouts and his lack of targets. And I think quietly he doesn't like Juju Smith-Schuster because Juju Smith-Schuster catches a lot of passes too and is really good. So quarterbacks are the rock stars of football. This much we know. But Antonio Brown is neither the first, and he's definitely not going to be the last receiver to achieve the diva status in the NFL as a receiver, the me-first status in the NFL. And I've always had this sense, and I believe this to be entirely accurate, as to why both wideouts and those that cover them, the cornerbacks, the safeties, the DBs, why it's almost always them that pop off at the mouth. Why it's almost always them that end up being the outspoken folks that they are. And it's pretty simple if you stop and think about it for a second. While linemen do deal with pancakes and disrespectful blocks and missed tackles or missed holes or whatever, letting somebody go by to sack a quarterback, 
things of that sort. Much of it's not highlighted. That said, Taylor Lewan talks. That's what he does. Much of the time, his play backs it up. But there is no position in football that consistently gets put up on a stage and a stage that's also an island like a wide receiver versus a defensive back down the field with a football in the air. If the wideout makes a double move or a comeback route and the corner trips over himself and breaks the figurative ankle in the process, he gets clowned. Social media picks up a nice you know, five-second video of it, and the receiver jaws at him and taunts him in his face. If the receiver is blanketed down the field, and you got whoever it is, Richard Sherman, Josh Norman, knocks that ball away. That is the closest thing in football to a blocked dunk. It's a pride thing. These guys are matched up one-on-one all day long, and those matchups are spotlighted throughout a football game. The essence of the entire position of wide receiver and DB, both of them, is I am better than you. And by you, I mean the guy directly in front of me that I'm covering one-on-one and pointing fingers at. So these guys then yap at each other constantly. They talk about how great they are. They taunt each other. They're out here dancing. They're celebrating. They're throwing tantrums. And they occasionally come to blows. But it's the essence of one-on-one competition. So when it comes to talking off the field, naturally, guys that are conditioned to compete that way are then going to do the same thing, right? You have to have that kind of personality in many respects to be one of the elites. It's not a hard and fast rule, but you got to think about it. Terrell Owens, Michael Irvin, Chad Johnson slash Ocho Cinco slash Johnson, Odell Beckham Jr., Antonio Brown now. And then on the other side, Deion Sanders, Richard Sherman, Josh Norman, even guys that played here like Cortland Finnegan. The point is... Wide receiver is a diva position by trade. Now, you can play it like Andre Johnson did a lot of his career, but that's an aberration. Most of these guys are showing off nine times out of ten, just like those that are covering them. There are far more Irvins, Shannon Sharps, Steve Smiths, than there are soft-spoken possession guys, than there are Larry Fitzgeralds or Anquan Boldens, And you know for a fact, DBs never shut up. Jalen Ramsey, I am looking in your general direction. So Antonio Brown's naturally going to be a diva, even if we didn't know about it off the top. Remember years ago, it was Mike Wallace on that very same team that was the malcontent because Antonio Brown was getting a lot of attention as as a Steelers wide receiver and having a lot of balls thrown to him. And now it's Antonio Brown looking at Juju the same way. And probably not liking Ben because, again, no one does. And Brown also fancies himself some kind of wide receiver deity. He's really good. And he's played around amazing talent his entire career. But Antonio Brown is dead wrong here, even if the opinion of himself isn't wrong. He's a touchdown machine. He's a reception machine. He's got incredible hands. And he did his part right up until he quit on his football team in the final week of the season when they still had a shot at the playoffs. And for that, this new-look Steelers franchise that spun off the rails for the past two seasons with the James Harrison to the Patriots deal, with not having a plan for the anthem, 
with with Villanueva coming out and just how disorganized it looked for them compared to many of the other franchises. All of the things that have kind of hit the foundation of the Steelers, been very anti-Steelers-like. Pittsburgh should bounce him. As great as he is, is the headache worth the level of Excedrin Pittsburgh is going to have to ingest? Because make no mistake, ladies and gentlemen, if Big Ben stays, and maybe it's time to move on there, AB84 is not going to be happy. He's going to get worse. This situation is not going to improve. Even though winning does cure all, the Steelers in 2019, man, the AFC North is a far different animal than it once was. Cincy's still probably going to be Cincy. But the Browns are undoubtedly one of the most exciting and dangerous young teams in the league. The Ravens seem to have really found something with that defense, and at least for now, and maybe forever, their rookie quarterback, Lamar Jackson. And the Steelers look like they're crumbling. And when you're not winning, all the drama pours out. A.B. is going to continue to be a problem. Who would have thought that the Madden curse this year would not be just an injury to its cover star as it has been so many years prior? But instead, the Madden curse this year is Antonio Brown becoming a disease in his own locker room that helped in many respects to seal their fate ending in the regular season rather than ensuring a postseason berth. It's pretty incredible. He's a great player. But this is going to get worse. And it's usually, you know, Scott Frost said in Nebraska, it's going to get worse before it gets better. I don't know that it gets better with 84 in a Steelers locker room, at least if you're keeping Roethlisberger. Maybe you should let them both go because Roethlisberger and Brown and Bell have combined for precisely zero Super Bowl appearances. We'll be right back. The Big Six on 104.5 The Zone. 1045thezone.com. Your home for the zone online. online. Read the Big Six blog. Register for contests. Find out what will be in your area. And catch up anything you might have missed with the Hiller Plumbing, Heating, Cooling, and Electrical Podcast. Find out how to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Download our mobile app and listen online. You'll find everything you need to keep up with the zone. All in one place at 1045thezone.com. Hope your Thursday is going well. Hopefully the traffic is starting to dissipate. Share of accidents out there means a share of brake lights. A little Ryan Adams for you coming back here. Big 6, 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin on Twitter at jmartzone. Follow me there. You can call me. 615-737-1045. If Jimmy Harper deems you acceptable, he will put you through to me. He's a tough cookie, though. You better bring it. Somebody did tweet me in response to what I was just saying, say Diva cornerbacks win Super Bowls, but not Diva wide receivers. Elite, but not Diva wide receivers win the Super Bowl. And he mentions Jerry Rice, Marvin Harrison, Reggie Wayne. True, but elite, but not Diva wide receivers that win Super Bowls, Rice, Harrison, Wayne. Rice won Super Bowls with Steve Young and Joe Montana. Marvin Harrison and Reggie Wayne won a Super Bowl with Peyton Manning. Also helps to have the quarterback. Again, there is no more 
important position in all of pro sports than the QB. Which is why, again, I say if you want to evaluate Marcus Mariota, take the eight open jobs in the NFL, add the Titans and make it nine, and then determine where the Titans fall if you were a head coaching candidate and had your choice, where would you go? I had Tennessee at four because I just, as much as I like Josh Rosen, I eh, Cardinal situation's just a little bit untenable. But generally, when you get outside the top three, and, and Darnold was hurt this year too, but the Ty Bowles experiment was not going to be right for him. No question about that. Nor was the OC very good there. But the top three, number one is Cleveland, mainly because of Baker Mayfield. But they do have a lot of young talent. But Mayfield's a stud, and he's a competitor, and he's a killer. Number two, as much as I don't really like the guy, Aaron Rodgers might be the most talented to ever play the position. And then number three, I like Darnold still, if you can actually get some weapons around him. And then I'll put Tennessee at four. And you take all the quarterbacks that are in the postseason and a couple of the jobs that are still open, the Kirk Cousins, for example, that did not make it, or you know whoever it is that you want to mention that didn't quite get there for one reason or another. Garoppolo is missing the whole season because of injury. And Nick Mullins at times played very well, at least in terms of just his pure stats. And you can certainly make other arguments and look at other things. You can look at some of the personnel that's down there outside of the quarterback, but it's generally the QB. So I think it gives you a pretty good litmus test as to where you would put Mariota and how you really feel about him based on how fast you would take the Tennessee job in relation to the other openings. This is a team that missed the playoffs by one game. Won nine games this year. Came down to the very last game of the regular season against the Indianapolis Colts on Sunday Night Football. And Mariota couldn't go and Blaine Gabbert was awful. And Andrew Luck is a beast. But I said Mariota's about the 20th best quarterback in the league when you factor in pros and cons. Some of the injuries, the inaccuracy, the inability to spot pressure, consistently at least. The inability to throw the football away consistently. And you say, well, throwaways aren't good. Well, then talk to Aaron Rodgers. He's doing it, at a, doing it at a historic pace, as is Russell Wilson. Pat Mahomes also throws the ball away a lot. You live to play another down. And it's not about him throwing bad interceptions, even though Mariota has exactly one more touchdown than he does interceptions over the last two years. And last year threw two more picks than he did touchdowns. It's simply about making the right play and staying upright. And those that want to call Mariota soft, Mariota's out here throwing blocks with his throwing shoulder. He's diving for extra yards. You can knock that soft stuff right off because that's trash. It's garbage. It's not true. Soft is a mentality. And it is something you can control. Injury prone is a reality, and you cannot control it. That's the difference. I want to talk for a minute, and I'm going to go to break early because I want to talk about Gene Oakland in the final segment of this show, who passed away yesterday at the age of 76. UCF lost to LSU. The streak ended. And UCF still talking a lot of smack. Mackenzie Milton saying that uh, Florida is not as good a program as they are. UCF has gotten a lot of good press over the last few years. Some media types that believe that they should have gotten a shot last year, that this is the perfect case for playoff expansion, that they love that this kind of broke up the monotony. They love the idea that they 
claimed themselves co-national champions because they were undefeated, the only undefeated team last year. And I was really happy LSU beat them. I wanted to see them beat them worse. If you look at it from a statistical standpoint, that score is nowhere anywhere close to indicative of how dominant LSU really was. And there are some people in the media that I saw during that game suggest that if McKenzie Milton was playing, UCF would win. Maybe so if LSU was missing every starting DB, which they were. Greedy Williams sat out because he's going to do the draft, which proves, yet again, this game didn't mean anything. It didn't mean anything as much as any regular season game LSU played all year long. You can assume that there are people out there competing because there are. A lot of folks still want to win these games. But it was a meaningless football game. It meant something for UCF because they wanted to go undefeated again. But you've got no deep, you've got a wide receiver out there playing DB for three quarters of that football game. I'm trying to figure out why Josh Heupel's not throwing to that guy every single play and daring him to stop it. A wide receiver at DB. Whoever that dude is covering should have caught passes all night long. That should have been the target. When you find something, you exploit it. Whether it's in a fight or anything else. You weren't throwing to Richard Sherman. You weren't throwing to Josh Norman. You're trying to keep the football away from Kevin Byard. You know? You're trying to throw, at least in the early part of this season, you're trying to throw at Malcolm Butler. No offense. Well, I said no offense, but I guess offense. So, UCF lost. It doesn't destroy the playoff expansion argument. But what's the real difference in UCF and a team like LSU or a team like Alabama or a team like Georgia or a team like whoever? Ohio State, Oklahoma, Texas, take your pick. Generally, you do have good wideouts and you can still have good running backs and you can still have good quarterbacks. We've seen small college quarterbacks come out and be great. We're seeing a few of them in the pros right now. The difference is in the trenches and it's in the size of the guys in the trenches. The offensive line and the defensive line, the meat up front is dominant on the side of the school with more money and the school in the Power Five. Power Five, when I think of Power Five, I think literally of the word power as it applies to the trenches and how they can just beat up on a small team. Doesn't mean a small team can't win, but that's the biggest difference on the field. Playoff expansion, that Georgia-Texas game, Georgia didn't want to be there. The teams that finished fifth in the college football playoff standings, meaning the first one out, have only won one time in four years. It's just impossible to care. And I'm not saying Texas couldn't have beaten Georgia. I'm saying it's really hard for Georgia to care about playing in the Sugar Bowl when they thought they should be playing in the college football playoff. It's such a letdown. You are facing a depleted, deflated team. So, yeah. I'm not necessarily going to excuse it by conference. Some people say any SEC game that's not in the college football playoff that they lose is because the SEC team didn't care. There are many teams that don't care in these bowl games that get their $500 gift bag, which is the most the NCAA will let them have. Maybe they travel somewhere to Hawaii or somewhere in California and they make a trip and they have fun during the week and then the game is just a game because it doesn't matter. The stats still count. It still adds to the record at the end of the year, but the record's meaningless once the college football playoff is determined. So it's an imperfect system. I still think it should be expanded. I joked and said, we're rewarding mediocrity by having four. We should just have two based on how Notre Dame looked and how Oklahoma was completely run out basically by Alabama early in that game before they took their foot off the gas. 
I still think we probably need to go to eight. I'd like to see UCF get a shot. But you can knock it off with, boy, they can definitely play with LSU. Auburn definitely didn't care last year. I think LSU did care, but again, not one single starting DB played in that game. A wide receiver played corner, and they outgained them by like 300 yards, meaning LSU over UCF. There is still a talent discrepancy. If you don't believe it at UCF, won't you ask Brian Kelly about it at Notre Dame, where they got boat raced and embarrassed by Clemson, and it showed up, not just the talent, but even where guys were recruited. Up next, a tribute to Mean Gene Oakland. I hope you'll stick around for that. This is the Big Six on 104.5 The Zone. Whether your sport is football, hockey, basketball, baseball, golf, or racing, we talk about it here. The Sports Station, 104.5 The Zone. segment of the big six here tonight followed by fox sports radio stick with us i'm jason martin i'm on twitter at jmartzone 615-737-1045 to join me we'll cracker for you i see the light bringing us back off their first record 2019 i'm seeing a lot of light 2019 has started out awfully good for your humble correspondent hopefully it started out really well for you so Square Circle Radio runs every Sunday morning here on The Zone. We're about to celebrate our fifth anniversary on that show later this month. And we talk pro wrestling on that show. Blessed to do it. Blessed to work at a place where the program director and other people are supportive of us talking about something niche like sports entertainment. And there are some people, I'm sure, out there that don't like the show. And then there's some people that have very nicely told us that they listen even though they have no idea what we're talking about because they find what we're saying intriguing and entertaining. And I appreciate them for saying that. But I'm blessed to do it. I'm blessed to do it with two of my closest friends in the world who have done everything for me and with me and hopefully feel the same about me in relation to them. Through the good and the bad, they've been there. There have been a lot of deaths we've discussed on that show, a lot of wrestling deaths over the last year, a lot of big wrestling deaths over the last several years. And yesterday, we lost a legend in Mean Gene Okerlund, one of the greatest hype men in the history of sports of any kind. He could play it straight around macho man Randy Savage, who famously would just look around and find some item and bring it onto the set for his interviews. His famous cream of the crop interview came because he just found a couple of single coffee creamers over in catering right before he walked up and he turned that into a promo and Gene Okerlund was a pro. He could somehow keep his composure around late 1990s balls-to-the-wall nature boy Ric Flair. He could handle the antics of his great friend Bobby the Brain Heenan, a longtime friend of his. They created magic every time the camera was on either of them. He could talk. He could sell a match. He could sell a guy or a gal, often better than they could sell themselves. He was a natural, dating all the way back to the AWA, then to the WWF, and then to WCW. Every single organization that he worked for appeared more professional and more daunting as an enterprise while he was there and because he was there. 
he enhanced the product every single time. And yeah, he did always make sure people knew who he was as well. He could promote himself quite well. Gene Okerlund worked in sports entertainment, in pro wrestling. But Gene Okerlund graduated from the University of Nebraska with a degree in journalism and broadcasting. And if you watch how he conducted interviews and how he handled his screen time, it showed that he knew his stuff. He had a way with words. He had impeccable timing. He started in Omaha as a radio DJ, and then he worked in the office of a Minneapolis TV station, and then came Vern Gagne and the AWA, who also were headquartered in the Twin Cities, and then that took him to the American Wrestling Association. He was just Gene Okerlund until Jesse Ventura called him Mean Gene during his AWA days, which, if you read anything about the man... It was the exact opposite of who he was. If you happened to glance at social media yesterday, you saw a 100% positive outpouring from the industry he made his living in for decades. Everyone saw Gene Okerlund as an incredibly talented guy, a really nice guy who cared about his job and his colleagues. I grew up with Gene Okerlund. I wanted to be Gene Okerlund when I worked in pro wrestling and I did some of the same jobs he did though not nearly as well and yeah there's a second side to Gene Okerlund that of someone that sat on a lot of bar stools all night long and drank heavily to excess to dangerous excess throughout much of his adult life he had three separate kidney transplants he battled some real health issues in his later years folks alcohol catches up to you if you consume it the way that Gene Okerlund did. He was often drunk, but never was he mean Gene outside of the ironic moniker that Ventura had given him years before. Like all of us, Gene was flawed. But when he was found dead in Sarasota on Tuesday, you saw what he meant to the rest of the world and to those that were close to him in particular. There's a book out there, a famous book by an author, a speaker, a businessman named Stephen Covey. You've either read this book before, been assigned to read it, or you've heard about it. It's regarded as one of the single best business and self-examination books of all time. It's called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Covey himself passed away six years ago, back in 2012. But this book is, you know, a couple of decades old. And in it, within the first 100 pages, is an exercise that the author asks his readers to take. And I did the exercise last summer myself. Basically, the gist of it is, and this book gives you practical, it's not a book that you sit down and read in a week or read in a couple of days. It's a book that you finish over a year as you actually apply each step because it kind of works in tandem to where at the end of it, you have all of these habits as part of your regimen or your new formula. And it, it does include faith, which I gravitated to immediately and family and, and all sorts of things like that. It is worth going out of your way to find, but it's going to take some time and it's definitely going to take some self-examination. But the gist of this one exercise is this, pretend you're dead, 
and you're attending your own funeral, what would you want to hear people say about you? Either the eulogy or the conversations that people were having before the service, after the service, at the wake, at the gravesite, at the meal afterwards, wherever it was. What would you want to hear people say about you? And in that answer is what you most care about. And what you find is, it's not the stuff you own. It's almost never the money you've made. It's not the power you've held. It's not the jobs you've run through. It's not the best work you ever did, whether it's the best radio show or the best movie you directed or the best letter that you drafted, whatever it is that you do for a living, it's not that. What you find is people want to hear things about themselves like, he was such a nice guy. You know what? She was always so willing to give. That guy listened to me anytime I needed him. She never met a stranger she couldn't talk to. I wish I was like that. She was so full of life. Watching how he loved those around him taught me the example of who I wanted to be. It's stuff like that. It's legacy stuff. It's the inside stuff. It's the person you are, not the person you may have thought you were or tried to fill houses full of stuff to prove you were. We spend the first half of our life, and this is from Richard Rohr. We spend the first half of our lives filling it with what we think we're supposed to be and what we think we want to be. And that's your money, and that's the stuff and the job and the attitudes and the social media follower counts and all of those things, the trappings of this world. And then in the back half, Rohr says that real wisdom, which isn't something you can buy and it's not something that comes to you when you're 18 years old, real wisdom leads us to spend what time we have left emptying what we filled in the first half because that was the false self. And we've now recognized the true self as we realize what's most important to us in our lives. And near the top of that list isn't even us. It's who we choose to spend it with and how we treated those we encountered. From the person selling the newspaper on the corner of Broadway and Demumbrian to the CEO that might hold our future in their hands. And based on what I read yesterday from Gene Okerlund's friends and from the many people whose lives he touched throughout his life, Gene Okerlund could stand at his own funeral and recognize his life wasn't in vain, that he lived it with dignity, even with blemishes. Gene Okerlund was a man who made other people's days brighter. That description, that last sentence I just uttered, that's what I want to hear someone say about me after I die. 
R.I.P. Gene. Nobody will ever do it as well as you did it. This interview is over. You can put your microphone down now. You've done your duty, and we thank you for it. Thank you for the memories. On the way out the door, let's make you smarter. Scott Kazmar does really good work for Football Outsiders, and his Twitter follow is highly recommended because of many of the stats that he puts out and how mind-blowing that they really are. This is another one, a great NFL stat. Since 1940, NFL teams scoring 36 or more points at home with zero turnovers are 417 and 5. Four of those five losses happened this season in 2018. Pittsburgh and Kansas City, 42-37. Atlanta, New Orleans, 43-37 overtime. Atlanta, Cincinnati, 37-36. Jets, Packers, 44-38 overtime. It's a new game, folks. And it's 2019. Welcome. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. God bless and good night.